Hey there, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And you are listening to Close Reads, podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing Joshua Cohen's novel, The Netanyahu's. We are discussing chapters five through eight in particular. Uh, before we get into it, though, we got together last weekend and we we did some planning. We we did some discussing, some team building, if you will. So this is our first episode after that. You guys have only been home for a couple of days. And I'd like to know, Tim, how energized are you to be on Close Reads right now after our weekend together? Can you say that again, David? David, you really cracked up on us. I you just said, was, I would like to know. And then that I was just, like... I, I just was saying, I would like to know how energized you are, Tim, oh. to be on Close Reads after our weekend together. Very. In a word... Very. We had great meetings. So good. It was a really good weekend. And we ate well. And that I feel like is a measure. Maybe not the measure, but a measure of a great weekend. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It's good. You know, we are recording in different cities, different states, all over the great country that we live in. Uh, We have, you know, we're in different time zones. We're always trying to figure out how to schedule things. And we only get to actually mm-hmm. hang out, see each other, you know, every now and then. And so it's great to just be in the year, in, yeah. Yeah, to be in rooms together, to sit at a restaurant, to uh to eat fried chicken and uh and just get a chance to to hang out. So we are energized. Hopefully Two everybody else falls. recognizes yeah, trust lots of trust falls. So many trust falls. Um lots we did of trust the, falls. We did the inverted trust fall where you fall face first. Instead of just mm-hmm. backwards, oh, that yeah. is it's, it's a real challenge. Yeah, well, you know what's funny? Did Sean let us down? I'm not going to say out loud right now. We can pick that up, you know, when he's next on the podcast. Yeah, exactly. What were you going to exactly. say is funny? What, I'm what's dying. funny to me is no. um, trust fall has kind of become synonymous to me for sort of like a late '80s, early '90s approach to team building that is so. Um, it just seems so weird and, and a little bit backwards now, but like, why did trust fall trust falls among all of the strange corporate practices of the late eighties, early nineties? Why is trust falls the the one that we kind of just go back to as a trope for silly corporate behavior? It's probably the most memorable. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Are we going to look There's back? a measure of danger. Yeah, there's a measure of danger. Are we going to look back at ropes courses, you know? Oh, yeah. But like see, them. both of those things are youth group to me. Oh, they like, are I didn't, I didn't group. have a job in 1989. You know what I mean? I was yeah, young. Right. I was right. in my my young, tender years. Tim was in his 14th year in corporate America at that yeah, point. Yeah, I was deeply entrenched. Right. Um, You're a vice <laughs> president of sales and marketing. Yeah, right. At age. Hewlett yeah. Packard. <laughs> I remember those days. Hey, hey, do you guys, how do you think Ben Zion Netanyahu would do in the trust fall exercise? That was perfect, David. Really nailed that transition. I think he'd be terrible. I think he'd be terrible. (laughs) Be a little bit rough, right? Yeah. Well, sure. This week we are going to be discussing uh, the emergence, the appearance of Ben Zion Netanyahu. Uh, finally, in a book called The Netanyahu's, he comes onto the scene two-thirds of the way through the book. Oh, yeah. um, we also do get a rather memorable letter about Ben Zion Netanyahu. Uh, and of course, an even more memorable um, scene 
with a door hitting a, a nose um, on purpose. Heidi texted me. Uh, I was Tim. I was texting her about the book. I wanted to see if she'd read that scene yet. Uh, and then she texted me later. Well, that that Judy gets knows what she wants, doesn't Music she? Girl <laughs> knows what she wants. Definitely she wants a new nose. Us. Baby wants a new nose. Baby gets a new nose. Uh, that's right. So, you know, maybe it takes a little bit of suffering, as the book mentions. <laughs> so in this section, we get a letter. Chapter five is a letter to our our narrator, to Ruben, uh, kind of recommending that they not bring him in, like offering a counterpoint to the previous letter that praises Ben Zion Netanyahu. Chapter six, then, is Thanksgiving, in which Ruben's parents come to town and uh, his father argues with his daughter. Chapter seven is the great nose... Um, Debacle. Compaid. Debacle. The nose, yeah, it's a the, debacle. The nose debacle. Nose compaid. I liked that one too. <laughs> and then chapter eight is uh, the arrival with a bit of a slapstick humor of uh, ben, ben Zion and his his uh, his tribe, if you will. Nice. Um, so we've got lots to talk about, but I wanted to go back to a question that you mentioned last time, Tim. You said you had read the, through five chapters, but we were we were talking about the first four last week. And you said... Something to the effect of, and I apologize if I butcher your actual phrasing. You said that you're still figuring out what this book is about. And you made a prediction, which we won't address the prediction yet because we're not to the end of the book yet. But I would like to know if the if what this book is about has come more into focus for you uh, after, eight, after eight chapters. Now that we're two-thirds of the way through the book, has it come more into focus? No. I feel like chapter eight, the chapter in which we meet Ben Zion and his family, is a crucial chapter. And I, for me, it's the strongest and funniest chapter of the book. Are you guys, do you guys agree, or were there other chapters that you're like, oh, no, I think this is like the real crucial chapter? You're talking about eight when they arrive? When they arrive and they are sitting at, um, Ruben and Edith's house, and it's just the train is like coming off the rails. The Netanyahu family is just super insane. Funny. They're insane. So that for me, that chapter has been the funniest by far. And yet, and, and it feels like this is the moment. The title of the book is The Netanyahu's Finally, we meet face-to-face, not only Netanyahu, but his family. So it feels like a moment of great import, but I still don't really know where we're going. I mean, maybe, Heidi, you would say we never knew where we were going in Confederacy of Dunces. It was kind of like a series of <laughs> like hilarious, uncontrollable, mirth-like chapters, and that's where we are with this book also. I want to hear what you would say to me Heidi? if I said that. <laughs> and then then you can... I, would I just want to hear like a Tim and Heidi back and forth right now. I would say, Heidi, I'm so glad that you finally came around on um, A Confederacy of Dunces, a classic comet, comedy from the mid-20th century. I'm glad that you... I'm going to mute while I just laugh through this. <laughs> <laughs> For listeners who are new to the show, that was not Heidi's favorite book. David and I really liked it and we found best. it to be very funny. And Heidi was a very good sport about that's it. That's all we can she ask. she did not enjoy that book. So that's a little bit of inside humor. Okay, all kidding aside, chapter eight, funniest chapter, um, kind of 
a, a, a chapter of real import because we get to meet our main, I don't know, our, our title character and his family. But do you guys know where we're going? Do you feel like, yep, I got this. I know where we're going now. I mean, I, I've read the book, so I I'm not going to, I can't. absolutely yeah. no idea where it's going. But I think that I'm okay with that because of the, the like the tagline on the cover of the book that says the Netanyahu's. An account of a minor and ultimately even negligible episode in the history of a very famous family. So I kind of like, oh, this is just an episode. This is <laughs> this is a book about that is an episode. I don't know what the episode is, but that's what it is. Last week, I made a prediction that Netanyahu's arrival was going to be sort of like a wedge moment in the history of Rube's family. Because of the Zionism um, that's bound up in Netanyahu's real history, people from Rube's family are going to kind of like choose sides. I'm beginning to waver on that prediction because, uh, because we're just not really going in that direction. And also the title, as you just said, Heidi, a minor and ultimately even negligible episode. I'm beginning to think like this is a book that's just, a, it's just a comedy. There's no, like, there's overtones of, like, mid to late 20th century Jewish history, the import of Jewish history during that time. But I'm starting to think, we're not going to really dive into that deep end. We're going to kind of skip along the surface. And the threat of getting really deep into the kind of wedge issues of Jewish history are going to make the comedic moments even funnier. Well, okay. Now I'm going to try to make some comments here without giving anything away. Yeah. But as we've noted, it's taken two thirds of the way through the book for our primary, for our titular character, the Netanyahu family to show up. And then it says that it's an account of this episode in the history of a very famous family. And yet this episode really doesn't even begin until we're two thirds of the way into the book, pretty right. much. So I read that as a bit of like dramatic irony. Like that's part of what makes the book funny in a way is it's subverting the expectations that it's presenting to us. And, and in a way, like the book says it's about the Netanyahu's, but is it about the Netanyahu's? Like who, what is this book actually about is different than what's the story that we're working towards. I agree. And so what we're really getting is this is the, we're, we're being we've been introduced to the Netanyahu's, but we're really getting the story of this other family, you know, Reuben's family and his wife and his daughter in particular. And I don't think it's a coincidence that chapter seven is kind of right in the middle. Like it begins kind of right in the middle of the book. It's like our our page count wise. It's our mm -hmm. it's our midpoint. Yeah, it's our midpoint chapter. Um, and so I think that part of where the humor comes from is by is in this dramatic irony in the sense that it's setting you up to think it's one thing. It's this book with this snowy, bleakish looking cover, right? And it says it's about the Netanyahu's. And we all know who the we you know we know the Netanyahu name and and it's it, the book's at it it starts out talking about being a historian and every now and then it drops in these letters and with that contemplate history, right? You know, the letters in particular are very contemplative about Jewish history. 
but then it leaves that behind. And that's, I think, what kind of leaves you uncertain of where the book is going because you never really know where you're standing. So Heidi, to go back to something Tim said a second ago, he said chapter eight is it was the funniest chapter for him. Do you agree with that? Or do you think that one of these other earlier chapters is funny? And I, maybe that's kind of a pedantic question, but like I'm, I am kind of curious to know like where we think the core of the humor is in this book. Because if we all agree on that, that's tells us one thing about the book. And if we don't agree on that, I actually kind of think it tells us something else, else about what the book is trying to do. So I'd be curious for you, like what's the funniest moment you've read so far or scene? Let's just say scene, not moment. Per yeah. Se. So I think that chapter eight is hilarious. I think for me, um, which is the one with when they're sitting on the bed, that one made me laugh a little harder because with his in-laws. Yeah. I love three or four. I loved that scene so much. And um, I think because that was, I think it was surprising how funny it was. So I think it was my first, because it was the first is why I think it's funnier, but not, I, I just think it's, I just think the whole book is hilarious, but I also think the whole book is just as sad as it is hilarious and just as serious as it is hilarious. Um, and I think David, to go back to what you said earlier with the title of the book and the, the, um, the tagline here, for me, as I've been reading, I'm realizing, okay, so with a title like the Netanyahu's, it could either, Netanyahu's can be either, the title can either be a reference to the subject of the book or the object of the book, right? Is this, or the Netanyahu's, who it's about, or the Netanyahu's the disordering agent that brings about meaningful change Ooh. for who the real story is about? And that's that a great seems way to say it. To me, like the Lord of the Rings is not Frodo. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Um, and also, so I, I think this is a book about being Jewish in America. That is what I think this book is about. I also think that the most delightfully funny and also sad and um, scathing reviews of the book is not just on Jewishness, but on academia. And that is hilarious to me too, all of that. Uh, and, and that like the, the commentary on academia seems to me much like the Trojan war and the Iliad, that, that the Trojan war, the, the Iliad's actually not about the Trojan war. It's about Achilles, but the Trojan war is the necessary backdrop for everything that's happening to Achilles and every action that Achilles takes. And that seems to me the same thing here. The fact that this is Jewishness and academia um, in America at this moment in time is creating all of this, you know, this this soup that is going to impact this family. I think it is about Bloom's family. This this makes me realize we should maybe do a a little uh, extra episode sometime on the campus novel, like what what makes a campus novel and what are some of the great the great ones? Because we've never really done one on the show, and it's a whole tradition, especially within twentieth century lit, of just amazing campus novels. Um, so maybe one day we should do a little uh, little side session on that. Do you guys feel like this book is a sort of long running? inside joke that to really understand it you have to be you have to be jewish is that possible yeah. it does feel like there's a lot of things happening that i'm on the outside looking in on right 
Like I am trying to orient myself to it all the time. Like what's Mm. going on over here in the corner of this scene? And I can't help playing it out like scenes in my head. Yeah. It feels like reading a script just as much. It feels like me reading a novel, like all of it's playing out. Like, I feel like I could walk into that house and recognize it. Like I have it in my head. And he doesn't spend all this time describing all the furniture, but it's like the culture of the family and words like instead of saying like pull out couch, he calls it a hide a bed, you know, things like that, that put it into this mid-century context that's mm-hmm. like very vivid to me and very much related to my grandmother's house. And sure. Um, and like you said, I do kind of feel like I'm on the outside looking in on this cultural commentary and you know, being like nudged in the ribs and I'm kind of like laughing along, but I don't really get the joke all the time. Right. Right. Well, I think that's true. In a good way. I mean that in a good way. I I think that's true, but I also think that what he's doing is pointing out that we all, to be be an American is to kind of be a, a a jumble of disparate parts in a way. Like everybody in America is sort of from somewhere else. Our heritage is from somewhere else. And that that's like makes it difficult to define what it means to be American. And so I think this book is about being Jewish, but it's about being a Jewish American to Heidi's point. And it's also about how everybody in America is a little bit, you know, different than each other. Like there is, it's like, there's no clear, simple definition of being American. Oh, yeah, I agree with that. That's right. See, I, I don't know that I, I mean, I agree. I agree. It's a book about being a Jewish American. That part, I agree. This book strikes me as deeply, deeply Jewish in a way that even you're going to think I'm crazy. My name is Asher Lev. No, I don't want to. I, I started to say even. It's it, two it's, different ways, though. Like now I feel like with both of them together. I'm yeah. like, oh. I get why these reactions are so extreme on each side, right? This is like secular Zionism. Right. And then there's like the Hasidic, like religious, right. ugh, just like intense culture. And But they both have to be that intense because of what it means to be Jewish in America. You, you know, what was the name of the painter in My Name is Asher Lev? The kind of secular Jacob Jew? Kahn. Jacob Kahn. This book for me in a lot of ways is if if Jacob Kahn went to hmm. um, a party at kind of like a distant uncle's house and this uncle had been born and raised in the United States, had not experienced, you know, the Holocaust like by being in Europe at the time and but still was clearly part of Jewish culture in New York. That's what this, that's this book's milieu in a way. And I think because Asher Lev, most of that book takes place within the confines of the strict religious context of Hasidism. That feels a little bit more at home to me because I was raised in a devout Christian family. And so Hmm. it does not feel like as you, it does not feel like a world that is really, that world did not feel strange, foreign to me. I was like, man, I recognize so much of these things. Yeah. There's like an ethos to it. Right. 
Right. Even if the language is a little bit different. Absolutely. And I feel like this is the other side of modern Judaism. It's like secular, mm. it, not even modern Judaism, of the modern Jewish experience, which is very outside of the religious bounds. We only see bits of it when Reuben's father shows up and he clearly has a very strong opinion about the way that like his family, his children, his granddaughter should embrace her Jewishness. It even leads to this kind of like violent episode, which seems to be somewhat kind of normalized because he goes and he takes a nap after all this like outbursts and stuff. Um, <laughs> so anyway, anyway, I, I think that's part of the reason why the book feels like an inside joke that I don't get a, that I'm not privy to because the world is just unique, really unique to me. Is it also possible though, that, that the reason it feels like an inside joke and maybe it feels a little bit foreign is because Asher Lev is approached with this incredible degree of like dramatic earnestness. It's so serious. Yeah. Whereas this book is dripping with dramatic irony and in a way it's skewering It's coming from a Jewish author who is skewering this sort of uh, the, the sort of secular Jewishness that began to define the sentence you know, Jewishness in the century. Like it's, it's dripping with, it's like, it's an acerbic, like acidic humor, but it's, 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 it's skewering the psychological, uh, like antagonisms that they have with Mm -hmm. each other and the Mm -hmm. the psychological effects. It's skewering that through this like macabre humor Unlike, and that sometimes can be hard to like grasp onto, whereas the earnestness of Asher Lev draws you in, like it really pulls at your heartstrings, right? And here, this one's not pulling at your heartstrings. It's more like a Coen Brothers movie, right? It's like this deeply Jewish sense of humor, and it's making fun of itself, and it's self-aware, and it's also like, you're probably not going to get why this is funny, but we're all laughing about it in our own way. And that, I think that's like, it, it, it is, it literally is an in series of inside jokes in some way. Right. Right, and and it's easier to latch on to earnestness than it is like macabre humor. I think that's I think that's a great observation, David. And I think part I I find the book a little bit wearying, um, in that I'm always kind of like looking over my shoulder, like did I just get the joke? Did I miss the joke? Is the wait is there is that a punchline or is that not a punchline? And so because the author and and this is a credit to his ability because the author has been so slight of hand with where he stands. It I'm, I feel like I'm always trying to track what's going on. Whereas by contrast, Asher Lev, you said it perfectly, David, it's so earnest and it's, he pits two earnest positions does Haim Potok in contrast with each other, right? And so you're kind of toggling back and forth, but the two positions are clearly and earnestly stated. Whereas here, I feel like I'm in this kind of like murky fog of irony and sarcasm and inside mm-hmm. humor, et cetera, et cetera. So I get done with a book, I get done with a chapter of the Netanyahu's and I think, I still don't know where we are. I just laugh, but I still don't know where we are. And okay. That's fine. So I think that's on this the intention. note, on this note, I, Heidi, I want to ask you a question. 
you've been sitting there quietly. Looks it almost looks like you're like uh, doing some deep, heavy research over there on your computer. <laughs> um, let's talk about the nose. Oh yeah, and and uh, Judy being a girl who gets what she wants. One of the big questions that I have when I talk to people about this book, uh, Sean and I were talking about this. Is it? Do you think that scene is funny? Yeah, but also like I I kind of. It's both. It's cringy. It is like watching an episode sure. of The Office. Yeah, yeah. It's cringy yeah. like that. I think one of the reasons it works as humor is because you kind of see it coming, but you know he sets it up, and you're like, "Wait, what's happening? She's not. Wait, is she?" And then, it, and then it happens, and the whole description of it is it, there's like this ironic detachment from him, and he doesn't really so that so then it builds up it builds up it builds up it culminates in this collision and then the descriptions are also funny and her response is so funny and her desperation in a way is funny and the way she talks to her mom is funny but all of it is also so deeply sad yes so when you stop and you you think about it it almost makes it does it does it make it is it is it too does it lack? I'm trying to think about how that's. Does it lack the earnestness that it needs to be truly meaningful? Oh, I see what you're asking. I think it doesn't because I guess this is the definition of irony, right? Like our narrator is more honest with his readers than he is with with the people around him, and so and since this is first person, that's direct honesty. It's different sometimes in, in other ironic books like Jane Austen, right? But I think we see his pain and feel it. But the thing that makes the comedy work is the, first of all, the extreme slapstick situations. And secondly, massive pendulum shifts between the suffering and the slapstick. And I think Cohen's really good at juxtaposing those and or putting them in like parallel lines next to each other within each individual episode of the book. Um, and that I think he did a really great job in that particular chapter. You read it and it is painful. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with a reader who just doesn't think that's funny because it is painful. And I think the most in that particular chapter, the pain is more center stage than this than the comedy but then the other chapters that's not always the case the comedy is more center stage than the than the suffering and so i think in that particular chapter we are supposed to feel walk away feeling like oh that poor girl and like we're supposed to feel the weight of that kind of pressure and the way that this family keeps missing each other and unable mm. to connect meaningfully over their shared their shared suffering as a family is that that sense of feeling adrift in a culture that doesn't welcome them, but somehow it doesn't bring them closer together. It has mm. it has created rifts between them, and I felt that mm. mo most of all in that chapter, um, and, and that course, was really sad. And of course, in that moment, he wasn't there. Like he makes this big point about it, and so a lot of it is a lot of the humor comes from his particular perspective of the things that are going on around him. Mm -hmm. And he sees the real world in this sort of macabre, like yeah. darkly humorous way. So like, if you look at the chapter in chapter seven, where she gets hit, it says, she says, okay, I'm out of the way. But of course she wasn't. 
she just stayed where she was, mm. kneeling at the door like some meditating monk or a mom, salaming on her carpet, her face up close to the knob, and with an exhalation, merely surrendered her hands to gravity and let her arms drop limply to her sides, so that when my brute father gathered his garment worker strength and charged the door, the door flew open and its interior knob slammed her nose as if her nose was a spike to be driven through her face. So it's like, if you just read that, like he gives you this this idea of the monk and that it's all like the situation is all funny. But then he says that it's like a nose, her nose were a spike to be driven through her face. And that's pretty gross and bleak, right? And then he says, well, that at least is how I have imagined it. And I've had to imagine it because I wasn't there. I slept through all of it until her final shrieking. So, you know, he's being sort of dramatic and overwrought in his own way. And so you kind of, maybe the apple okay. doesn't fall far from the tree. I agree. Also that moment, Later on, when Ben Zion Netanyahu references Judy's name and brings us back to Judith in the Bible, it made me think of also that moment of the spike being driven through her head made me think of JL and Joshua and in the book of Judges and how she does a very similar thing to Judith in the myth in the in the story and she drives a spike into that king's head Mm. and there's all kinds of really interesting old testament references that are comparisons that are put into the that was just one of them and there's others Mm. too that i can't think of off the top of my head that you would recognize they're all just old testament references like bible stories that are kind of like worked into the humor um and that was one of them that i noticed in a way it adds depth like to the story, like thematic depth, but it also works from a character perspective. Because of course, this educated, you know, professor would know these stories and would and right. would, they would be right. in his subconscious, like trying to calm out, even as he's sort of like views himself as an un, and he's a non-practicing secular Jew. Tim, what were you going to say? I, I was going to take the conversation in a slightly different direction. Let me just do it. Go ahead. Um, I so I, I I'm trouble. I'm having trouble knowing kind of how seriously to take the book, like how book how serious the book takes itself. Clearly, the humor is in the forefront, and so in that way, we're supposed to laugh. I think our our what Cohen wants from us chiefly is to be amused and to laugh and to enjoy ourselves. And so, but I keep asking myself if there's something going on kind of behind the scenes. And so here is one of my main dilemmas. Our main character, Ruben Bloom, doesn't really know what to stand for. He doesn't really have a position that he can advocate. You know, he is the professor of like kind of obscure economic packs in the medieval world, you know, and it's clear that that is an academic exercise for him. It's not that his heart is really invested in these things. It's what he teaches. And maybe he's like, um, curious about it, but he's not, his heart is not invested in it. So Mm -hmm. here's a man that doesn't really know where he stands. His family seems like they're kind of miserable um, they at least just, they just don't enjoy each other's company, right? So we've got him on the one hand. On the other hand, we have these two um, characters, his father and Ben Zion, who believe in something, right? They have a strong opinion about 
the Jewish people, um, Jewish religion. And those two characters, I think I'm safe in saying, are the most repugnant characters in the whole book thus far. Like nobody's really just like a charming angel who, you know, comes and has like brilliant insights and is winsome. That character doesn't exist in the book. But I think we can say these two characters, Ben Zion, his family, his nuclear family, and I think it's Zaid, the father of Reuben, are, they're, they're just kind of aggressive. And I don't know that I would call them monsters. Maybe Zed is, but are we supposed to make anything out of this dichotomy between those who believe so strongly are really unattractive and the one who doesn't know really what to advocate for, Ruben, is kind of lost in this middling space. Are we supposed to see this kind of like lose-lose juxtaposition? I think, Tim, I think he's just skewering different representations of Jewishness through all of these different characters. Yeah. And in like, so that's what the book is? No, the book is, but I mean, maybe, but that sounds like, that sounds a little bit. Dismissive. Like, or, yes. And uh-huh. and. I, well, that's why, I think that's, that the that's comedy, why it's dark comedy, right? Like, I think to say it's just to be funny is sounds a little bit like that to me too. I don't know if that's how you mean it, but oh. like, because I think the comedy is the vehicle for this contemplation of Jewishness, not like a, not a reduction of it, but the vehicle of it. But the contemplation of this is what I'm not getting. The contemplation of Jewishness is I'm going to skewer both sides. But there's also so much gravity of like loss and suffering portrayed through it in my opinion i think it has just as much like i think that if the comedy has is like this intense dark comedy which is really funny like i also think that there to me i'm responding with both ends like i'm responding with like that was hilarious and also i kind of want to cry this seems really hard have you guys seen a serious man no long time ago the Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. It's kind of like this. But like bleaker. <laughs> I mean, the thing about the thing about dark comedy or black comedy is that you can it allows you to examine or provoke thought about things that are otherwise well, on the one hand, otherwise taboo, but also that are just serious or painful to discuss. So if you're if you're Ruben and your daughter is so upset with her nose and how and her appearance and who she is. And she, it, to the extent that she's willing to put herself through what she put herself through, then that's, that's like a, there's a, there's a tragedy in that. And the psychological, his approach to, to what, to that is to, to look at the, to look at the humor of it. He has his view of the world is sort of, acidic in and of itself. And so I think that it's allowing the author to contemplate things that are otherwise very bleak and difficult without it being too bleak or difficult to read. You know, you like, and I think that's why the letters are here though. There's these two letters that take up like chapter five is long. And the, le- the letter writer even says, eh, sorry, my letter's too long. I just took up too much of your time as if Cohen knows that. But I was thinking about why they're here. And I think part of it is that it's reminding us 
that there are serious matters at hand as well. Um, Bloom himself is kind of like, you know, as you've kind of implied, Tim, he has the, the sort of acidic, uh, maybe uh, migratory view of the world in terms of like he migrates from idea to idea. He doesn't settle on anything. But then there are people whose ideas really, really matter. And the the book is able to offer us the things that really matter through those letters, because in those letters, we're no longer inside Bloom's perspective. Mm-hmm. He's including those in the narrative because it's ty- it's inter- it's preparing us to have the encounter with the Netanyahu's, but it's also allowing the book to contemplate ideas that Bloom is not looking at in a straight way, right? He's looking at it in an indirect way through his sense of humor. It's like he's not psychologically prepared or willing to look at the damage head on. So the only way he can do it is by being by by looking at it in an acerbic way, by using his filtering it through what his sense of humor. So on the one hand, it allows us to laugh at things, but on the other hand, it also allows us to be to be put in his perspective and examine our own perspective on these things like why do we think it's funny i I, i'm struggling i'm struggling to see that because i let me make a contrast um ignatius j riley confederacy of dunces we alluded to it earlier i think i keep referring to it because it's another dark comedy right at the end of that book ignatius j riley we had this sense of like man our author our author beneath all the kind of crass humor beneath all the kind of castle building scholasticism that comes out of Ignatius J Riley's mouth there's something there that our author my reading would be that our author used to believe in and kind of is now making fun of himself in this kind of cynical way He's so frustrated at the modern world that he almost goes in the opposite direction and becomes this cantankerous medievalist, right? That's kind of my reading of the book. And part of the reason that the book is so intriguing to me is that that, that there's, there's a belief there that was kind of maybe corrupted or corroded or has become, he's, the author has become cynical about, but there was something there. In this book, I'm missing whatever that thing is. And I think, so what do I mean by that? I'm missing, um, what is the ideal? What is the hopefulness? What is the picture of thriving that Reuben Bloom used to have or that does have that has been lost, that's been skewered, and now... um, it's like the dark comedy has kind of overrun whatever that hopefulness was. And I think it's, it, I think that I am missing it because this aspect of modern Judaism is so, I, it's just foreign to me. I'm just kind of admitting that I'm just um, a little bit out to sea and I don't see what that idealism is. And I'm, and I'm think I'm also saying it might not actually be there. Heidi, do you want to respond to this? I'm sure Heidi just got like a giant smoothie put into her hand <laughs> right as I said, it's Heidi, do you pink. want to respond it to this? Looks I like, mean, it would look so big. And it Jack, looked like cotton candy in a mason jar. Jack it made us himself a smoothie and he's like, it's really good. You should try it. And he was right. It's very good. <laughs> okay. So 
I agree with I I agree that I'm missing the launch pad. That I agree with. Um like can, Tim can we define what that means it. though? Like Tim doesn't see no, the no, launch no. pad to what? Like I I think the if he's maybe if I can put it in maybe try to restate it back, Tim. Are you saying that if we have a satire or a farce that's oriented or like grounded within a uh, a certain culture, then what you're missing is an understanding of what that culture is. And so the skewering doesn't feel like skewering. It just is like, it's unrecognizable. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Right. That's right. Yeah. So you're not sure what um, the quote unquote normal is. And so then like the caricature isn't a caricature. It's just a characterization and it feels like it's not working. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't even say normal. I would say I'm using the word ideal, like uh-huh. something good that is, that is like been smothered, lost, what have you, that the I, humor is sort of like um, covering, covering over or having fun with or something like that. I don't know what that Kind of like is. if somebody who'd never seen a, to use your earlier comparison, then like somebody reading a novel like this about evangelical Christians in the 20th century, which would be a really hilarious novel. And I don't know why anybody right. hasn't done that yet, right. but had never been to an evangelical church and is like, so what's the deal with these people on like the big screen yeah. with the smoke machines doing a rock concert about Jesus? Like, like that is a weird thing to do, but like they wouldn't but have there's something the context. real behind it. There's yeah. something real. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Exactly um, right. That makes sense to me. And maybe I, I guess I just am like looking at this character um, and seeing, wanting something for him that he's lost in and thinking that this, perhaps this disruption in his life is going to bring to him. Like I'm starting from the character, not the culture. So I'm thinking this man obviously has no identity. He's in an academic field that's all about specialization. He has a specialization he cares nothing about. He's part of a family in which he's disrespected by his wife and his daughter. And they miss his love for him, his love for them all the time because they're in their own suffering, right? Also, he is part of a religious and political culture that he has spent his whole life running from, not finding himself in. Where is this man's identity? He's a man without an identity. And but, here but comes the- here comes Ben Zion Netanyahu, who I think is going to restore that to him in some hilarious, dark comic way. And that is what I think is happening in the book. I see. I, I don't know. I see. Okay. Okay. Right I see. Not. Yeah. I think the book is about how there is no ideal. And that how, and like, it's like, the, it's about crafting identity. Ben Zion Netanyahu is trying to craft a particular Jewish identity in the 20th century. Secular Judaism in America is its own new identity. Then you've got the people who are li- trying to live out this, like, you know, you've got the, the, um, the Hasidic Jews who are trying to bring an old form to America, but there is no defined ideal or identity within American Jewish life. Because of everything that, that like Ben Zion Netanyahu's not wrong in the sense that Jews have suffered a great deal. 
And so he, I think what he's doing is he's allowing us to see what happens when you don't have that identity to cling to, when there is no ideal to cling to. Like, I think that's why you're not recognizing one personally, because I, I think the book is about how the fact that there is no, there isn't one there. Hmm. And that there is a, there's like a tragedy in that. There's a tragedy in not having that to grasp onto, to be rooted to. Huh. Yeah. That, if that's, I mean, David, you've read the whole book, so you know kind of where we're going. If it goes in that direction, that makes a lot of sense to me. And maybe we're just like, my frustration, and it is and it is frustration, is because we're two-thirds of the way through, and I'm, and I'm kind of like, the book is hilarious, but I don't even see really what he's skewering, to use mm. your phrase from earlier, David. By contrast, I'm thinking of, um, you guys know Candide, the Voltaire, oh, yeah. the short novel? Mm-hmm. It's a brilliant, brilliant book, a satire, a satire of an idea from, is it Leibniz's idea that it all is, things yes. work together? It's not just for all good, things work together. the best of all possible worlds. Yeah, this is all the best is of all the possible best worlds. the best of all possible worlds. And it's, it's so great because Voltaire has this character's experience tragedy after tragedy after tragedy raping, pillaging, destruction, and always, but this is the best of all possible worlds, such that when we get to the end of the book, there's this kind of notion that if we stop believing this is the best of all possible worlds and actually like accept the world's cracks and shortcomings and yeah, destructions, then we actually can do something kind of positive in the world. So I the satire ends is kind of like hiding this little silver lining that's really satisfying in the end. For me, I don't see that silver lining yet. But I but I'm I'm totally open to the fact that either it's because I'm not enculturated enough into modern Jewish life to recognize it, or David, as you said, it's coming. It's it's about a forging of an identity, not about the upholding of an ideal, but it's about like the forging of an identity when old ideals have like crumbled, something like that. I mean, I, I just think it's a book about how being Jewish in America in the 20th century or being Jewish at all in the 20th century in the wake of things like the Holocaust was incredibly fraught and incredibly complicated and incredibly psychologically uh, damaging in some ways for a lot of people and that when you don't have anything to grasp onto it's hard to like create or live within a culture um and that and that and you get division um you get divisions within homes you get divisions within ideologues you get people trying to create one ideology but it's not always compatible with another um i think we're going to get into that more i don't know if it'll become clear i I can't answer whether it'll become clear to you but i do think it's there more as we go um I think the letters kind of preview some of the ideas that shake out in the like denouement of the novel, particularly Netanyahu's um, personality. I also think little things like, well, they're not little, but like the the way people treat uh, the the blooms with such like the condescension that they're treated with, um, the whole the stuff about bonanza and gun smoke. You know, like there's this sense in which everyone's trying to they're trying to figure out what part they play in a world that loves Christmas and gunfights, right? <laughs> and that's not, you know, they're the one house that is is dark and he makes a big deal. He's like, ah, I should have just told them to, if they wanted to find our house, it's just the one that's not all lit up. And and so I think in part, it's about the, the, the difficulty of, yeah, trying to 
create and forge identity. But I think Bloom in particular, he views everything like he he's kind of like not serious. And that's what makes the book both funny and and like a little bit even extra sad because of his lack of serious. He's like not a serious person, as his wife says, you have a very droll sense of humor or something like that. She, oh, he says, that's the kind of cocoa that doesn't stain right. And she says, that's right, Ruben. And yours is the kind of humor that's droll. So the people, characters in the book kind of keep telling us the way it is. Like but Net, Net, Netanyahu's wife says, it's all broken and black. You know, she says that at one point. Um, and people keep dropping little lines like that, like out of Shakespeare. Go ahead, Tim. One of the sections that I found to be really powerful, I'm, I think I'm coming around to see your your point, David is the discussion between um, the granddaughter and grandfather in, I think that's chapter six. So Edith, the granddaughter, has written this admissions. Well, Edith is the wife. Judy is the... I'm sorry, Judy. Judy, I'm sorry. Judy has written this admissions essay about fairness. And Reuben's father, who has suffered greatly hears her argument and tears after it. I mean, absolutely goes after it. So um, 104, page 104. Disgusting altar, my mother said. And Edith, one-handing a tilting stack of dessert plates, tried to take my father's, but he held on to it. It's empty, Edith said. You're finished. I'm not, my father said, and slapped his spoon onto the plate like a striking gong. And when nothing shattered, let it go. In America, he returned to Judy, they tell you to mix with non-Jews, marry non-Jews, run away from your tradition, get a new name, get a new nose, change who you are, eat like a Turk, eat a turkey like an Indian, and in return you get fairness. That's the deal. And so you change it all, and then you go to collect this fairness you were promised, but all the offices where you made the claim are closed, because this country never holds up half of the bargain. Even if it does, even if it treats you fair by accident, maybe, or maybe only by treating someone else next to you more unfair and you feel better when you compare yourself, there will still always come some problem that fairness can't solve. And the moment it does, everyone jumps overboard from the sinking ship and rushes back to the people they came from. I found that to be a really powerful really insightful, really true. And it's coming and, and and I and it's coming from someone who later kind of like he's just cruel to his granddaughter. You know, he's mean to his granddaughter. At and best he's dismissive. At best he's dismissive. I think he's more than dismissive. I think he's actually yeah. cruel to her. But what he's saying I I think he's right. And if I had to just say like, okay, whose stock are you going to buy? This kind of cynical man's view of the world or his granddaughter's, you know, hopeful fairness view of the world, I'd actually buy stock in his because I do think that kind of like there's something about, I think his criticism of America is largely borne out to be true. You know, I mean, and at the same time, That's true. At the same time, I hold out that like the things that our country stands for are are oftentimes not instantiated and yet are ideals that like I want to stand up for and say like these are ideals worth pursuing. So yeah, yeah, 
the book is um the book is complicated because yeah i hear what you're saying jewish experience in modern america is extremely complicated i i very much enjoyed this book as you know when i read it the first time but i'm realizing that there's actually even more depth in some ways than i thought really reading it a second time really like there's things that are opening it up and i'm and there's times that i thought were funny previously that i think are sadder and things that i thought were not as funny that i think were are more funny this time Mm. because i think that uh, Cohen has a really good eye for when people are being earnest. A lot of the times they say absurd things. And so it's like they're being genuine. They're being, they're telling the truth. They're speaking to some sort of ideal or idea. But the way that people often phrase that, like it's just true of everyday life, right? Like if you took the things that most people say and you put them in a script, you'd be like, well, that's kind of absurd. But in mm. conversation, you accept it. And I think that some of the humor comes from that observation by Cohen because they're talking, even that kind of line from, the grandfather there you can read it in, in ways that are both very true but also some of the examples for for example mm. are pretty funny um and like there's a little bit of absurdity to some of the way that the ideas are presented and i think cohen's really good at that Heidi, what were you gonna say i know we gotta start thinking about wrapping this up soon i don't remember i was listening to you and that was really good i forgot <laughs> i'm talking a lot this show you guys i recognize that you're working through some stuff i am i'm working through <laughs> some stuff i like it i Heidi, before we get to a, you know, narrowing down on a question for this week, uh, do you have anything that you want to add here? Any final thoughts or anything? Because I know we got to start wrapping it up or any particular passages that really stood out to you. Um, I mean, not right off the top of my head. We got into just a lot of really good stuff today that I think captured, or at least if not captured, at least widely contemplated um, this section of reading. So I think I'm going to say no. How about you, Tim? I'm going to say no. I've put all my um, unfolded laundry out to dry. The wrinkles are exposed. The wind is not really blowing. I'm hoping that my laundry will make process to kind of torture this metaphor to death. (laughs) I'm hoping that my laundry will actually show up clean, breeze fresh by next week. I thought the Yahoo's joke was really great. The Yahoo's joke. Yeah. So, yeah. What what should we do for question of the week? Hmm. But what do we want to hear what people's feedback is on? I mean, we could like it could be something as simple as do we think Judy's uh nose capade is uh is funny? Yeah. Is a funny scene. I would like um, to know what our I would like I would like to know what our listeners think about the humor in this book so far. I'm very forgiving of dark humor. Um but I also know that it can be distressing to people and feel very dismissive um, or just mm-hmm. like cringy, you know, like I actually don't yeah. really like cringe humor. I don't. Okay. There are multiple office episodes. I cannot make it through. But <laughs> like dark humor to me, I'm like forgiving of it. But I that's like a preference issue. So I'm just curious what our listeners would think even about some of those. The humor. What about what about phrasing it this way then? Does the way Cohen presents judy's on purpose accident her nose capade is is the humor inherent in his presentation too dismissive of the struggle that she's going through i is that i like that that, i think it's pretty specific do you want it to be specific or more open it is a little bit no a little bit yes or no that's true um like just do you find it funny 
Is the nosecapade more funny or more sadly poignant? Even that feels a little bit too specific to me. But like I, it feels like we're being just, too leading in the question. Yeah, like let people say, I don't know, but I I get Tim. You, yeah, how about we let her? We just go with her her choice because you and I spent more time talking. This great, week. that's great. <laughs> so Heidi gets to, Heidi gets to go with the question. Is the nose uh, paid a funny scene? Why or okay, why not? There we go. That's our question of the great. week. So if you want to to you know offer some feedback on that, you can go over to the. Uh, the Substack post where this episode is, is is published and you can leave a comment underneath there. And I'm sure people will have lots of thoughts on this. Before we go, I want to read the final paragraph of chapter eight because it's one of my favorite passages in the whole book. And then we can, we can wrap it up. So while I'm reading this, you guys have a chance to think of a final thought or two. I know you got to get going. So he's leaving. He's about to leave with Netanyahu to go to the college. But he's been uh, thinking about these Westerns that are on the background, the the boys, the Netanyahu boys are talking about them. He says, consider these stories. A band of across-the-border desperados threaten a ranch, and a lone gunslinger is warily hired to dispatch them, paid a bounty with the last of a sweetheart prostitute's dusty nuggets. A tribe of savage Apache attack a wagon train of honest Christian missionaries who compromise with violence. I'm not saying these stories had an outsized influence on the future direction of the Netanyahu boys so much as I'm saying they had an outsized influence on everyone at the time. And anyway, when I put on my galoshes, blew a kiss to Edith, she refused to lasso in and left the hacienda amid the giddy-ups and crack of gunshots, the association I had was with the father himself, Ben Zion, and frankly, with visiting lecturers and guest professors of all kinds, those solitary marksmen who wander as strangers from town to town, itinerant in habit, itinerant in mind, burning with the need to live down their pasts and prove, prove their strength to the cruel and hostile locals. This was the story of the Yahoo striding next to me, the Yahoo striding ahead of me, even though he didn't know where he was going, an, unco- an uncompassed loner in the snowy wastes, a solitary quick-draw artist in hood and beaver hat, thumbless mittens, unraveling scarf, and floppy blue shirt, bluchers whose soles flapped like a horse's lips. It's really good. I don't, I don't, I don't know. How do, you, how do you come up with that stuff? It's That's, really good. I, it, it Speaking goes, of prolonged like, metaphors, that's a really great he, prolonged metaphor. It starts with this like contemplation, gun smoke. What does it mean that gun smoke had an outside influence on all of us and all that? And they're going to talk later about what you know ends up happening later in life to the Netanyahu boys. Yeah, Tim's got to go. And then next thing you know, he's 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 gotten carried away with his metaphor and calling Netanyahu a you know an uncompassed loner in the snowy wastes. I just think that Ruben is a hilarious character, and I think Cohen's kind of a genius in terms of how he how he writes. So I just wanted to read that because I it's a, I love it. So Tim's gone. Heidi, do you have any final thoughts? My final thought is just how delightful it is when you love a book. <laughs> when you love a book? No, when you love a book, specifically oh, you. Because, because we read a lot of books that are i mean we all have like the kinds of books that we like and the kind of writing that we like and the kind of themes that we like and all that kind of thing like you don't get a ton of your favorite kinds of books on here because you like them like this and that's like (laughs) (laughs) you like weird books is what you're trying to say yeah kind of and you like you like books with a lot of humor you like the you like the underdog. There's just certain things. There's something. Uh, it's fun when you and you get excited about craft like this. And the, I do. I the do. old, 
like old books don't have craft like this. And we read a lot of old books. So it's just cool. Yeah. 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 It's cool when you're just like um, savoring the writing. It's fun. And you're right. This, this book, like the writing is, I mean, it's just so smart. Yeah. I like a book that makes me, I actually like like the the dissonance that Tim, I wish Tim was here to hear this actually because mm-hmm. I don't want it to feel like I'm attacking him. The dissonance that he is speaking to uh-huh. about not enjoying, I love. Right. I love a book that feels smarter than me. And I don't say that because I think I'm smart. I just love a book that leaves me constantly feeling like I don't exactly know what just happened, but not but in not in a way that's like trying to be obtuse, just that it's about a lot of things and it's I get to be curious about them now. I get to learn something new and feel like I'm having a new experience and I'm going in a direction I've never gone before. Like I've never read, a, you know, this is not a book you're going to find a lot of varieties of, right? You're not going to find, you're not going to get a lot of times where people are like, if you liked the Netanyahu's, read this, <laughs> right? Unless it's something that's different in its own way, right? Right. And so I I love that. And I love that this book is probably going to be a, have a cult following in 20 years and, and you know, that that sort of thing. And I also understand that not everybody likes that. And my sense of humor is very strange compared to like a lot of people. And so I'm, I feel a little bit I'm enjoying that everyone's kind of humoring me and reading this book on the show. <laughs> I feel like the audience is kind of like, uh, We'll just get through this one and then we'll get you give one we'll give one to David here and then we'll get through it and then we'll move on to like it's just really you know. important though. Like it's such an important <laughs> thing to do to um to read books of your time. I mean, we do we do a really good job of honoring the book tradition. Um, yeah. but even I mean, even C.S. Lewis when in uh in his essay on the reading of old books, which is the kind of essay that's thrown about with people who read like us. Um, when yeah. he says you should read 10 old books for every one new book, you know, but we, uh, we ought to read those one new books. Right. And so you pick the best of them and the most interesting and the smartest and, mm-hmm. um, the most compelling. And I, th- I think this is a well-deserved choice for the show, mm-hmm. um, because of that. Well, it's gonna be fun to hear how Tim yeah. comes around or if he comes around by the end of the book and, or if he just doubles, it feels like it's like that what he was saying was proven proven right um so we'll get to debate that next time so we will discuss to the end of the book and then uh on next week's episode and then of course we'll do the q a after that if you want to send in an answer to this week's question of the week again you can go over to substack and post it where this episode is published that's uh closereads.substack.com don't forget that we do have uh bonus content including written content and uh as always, our, our our subscriber exclusive episodes we're about to record tomorrow night. We're going to be recording our first episode on Out of the Silent Planet. And that's tomorrow night when we're recording. So by the time you're listening to this, that episode actually might already be up. So check that out if you're a C.S. Lewis fan or you like science fiction or you just want to, I don't know, support Close Reads. Um, and as I, and as I mentioned at the top, we we are a little, we're, we're energized as a group, I think, with yeah. lots of ideas for the rest of 2023. Um, so hopefully that shows up in our in our lots shows and, and growth, the things that we're producing. Like lots of yeah. growth in response to um, the community. Like there's yeah there's a, so we've got ideas for events and for content, and it's just really yep. it's 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 cool to see this community grow, not only wider but deeper. And I think that's been mm. our goal over the for our conversations. So I'm excited. If our choice has to be, we grow deeper, we grow wider. We're going to say we want to grow. Deeper. Yeah. Deeper, deeper, faster than we do. So it's proportional. So in, in our, one of the things, you know, for our listeners, um, 
we've uh, as the community grows wider, it's really important for us, and we've made it a huge priority to make sure it grows a correspondingly deeper. And so that's that's where we've been yeah. focusing growth. So it's super cool. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to everyone who's a part of it. Joins the conversation either on the Facebook group or on Substack or tells friends or leaves reviews or whatever it is. We appreciate that as always. Okay, well, for Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Happy reading.